understand that, you know, on the, on the get-go, those two things, that sex sins are worse than other sins because they do more damage than other sins. It'll begin to make sense to you. But at the same time that we understand in the midst of this, and Paul will bring this out in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you know, where, and again, he echoes it in Romans uh, it himself when he says, you know, where sin abounds, grace does all the more. And so even when God is dealing with sin, the, the beauty of God is God always makes a way of escape. And that escape for us is the cross of Christ. And so as we uh, study his word this morning, may the cross become even more evident in all of our lives. And so let's just take a moment here and we'll pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And we believe that your word is truth. And we believe that your word is, is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And so as we study it, we, we pray that like Solomon's intention is a good father who loves his son, uh, wasn't afraid to share his own failures, uh, his own hurt from life in hopes that his son would make the same mistake. And, and your word tells us as believers that we overcome the accuser, we overcome the devil by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony. And so there's power in our testimony, even in our failure, because our failure is what brings us a lot of times uh, to you. Uh, it's why we recognize uh, our need for you, Lord Jesus, in our life, that you are a sinner, that, or a savior that came to save sinners. And uh, Lord, we recognize that in our life, that we're sinners in need of a savior and we thank you so much for coming from heaven to earth and dying on a cross rising again on the third day so that we could know that our sins not only are forgiven but that there's life in you and so lord lead us to that place where we all experience life today we pray in jesus name Amen. Amen. You know, when Jesus began, you know, his public ministry, you know, we read from the book of Isaiah, the very purpose of him coming into this world, he was actually in Nazareth. If you, you don't need to go there, but in Luke chapter four, when he began his public ministry, he goes to the town of Nazareth and, and he goes into the synagogue. It's not by accident. You know, they open up the book. It just so happens the day that Jesus is going to read, there's a rotation, a cycle, you know, of reading the scriptures. It just happens to be Jesus day. And the Bible just happens to be open to Isaiah chapter 61. And so as Jesus begins his ministry, he reads these words. He says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And you think about that, you know, who did Jesus come for then? If you read that, you know, pretty plainly is he came for messed up people. Would you agree? You know, he came to set the captives free. He came to people who had problems. You know, it's been well said, a church without problems is a church without people. You know, it's why Jesus came. We're not perfect. We serve a God who is. And yet he's discipling us. He's training us. He's empowering us uh, to become holy, to live holy lives that are pleasing to him. You know, uh, you think of all the epistles uh, that are written and uh, it, it's amazing, you know, that they're, they're bringing correction. Paul is answering questions and he's bringing correction. You know, we need correction all the time. We need accountability. It's one of the reasons why in service, you know, in-person service is so important in our lives. Because if we, if we lose this, we're going to lose our accountability to one another. It, it's part of this is what helps us stay on, you know, in the sense the straight and the narrow. God's given us one another. We're, we are the body of Christ. And so... You know, when I, I think about all the things, and, and I started to get into this, and I really had to stop. You know, there's so much statistical data that supports, you know, the fact that sex sin does more damage, you know, to the person committing the sin than any other sin, you know, that we can commit. 
And, and again, and there's a reason for that. And if you think about it, I mean, there, there's the sexual sin can have uh, ramifications that deal with the, the result of, in a sense, an unwanted pregnancy. There's, in a sense, no child that's unwanted. God wants every child. But, but to, to families, to, to people, you know, the result of uh, unwanted children. Uh, or, you know, the impact of sexually transmitted disease. Uh, I mean, there's implications that are so different in sexual sins that are different than any other sin. And you think of all the statistics that go along with that. Uh, the impact that sexual sin has upon the church. How many churches have been destroyed, whether it was the, the pastor of the church or the people in the church. You know, sexual sin is so unique in comparison to other sins and even to the world around us. You know, it's amazing, you know, that the word hypocrisy gets used by the world when hypocrisy is a religious term. It's not a worldly term. The world, you know, in a sense, can't be a hypocrite because they're not pretending to, to be righteous at all. So it's something that, you know, the world recognizes and when we think about the word hypocrisy. But that, that, that is a term that's limited to someone who's claiming a life of faith. You know, I, I think about, you know, as a, as a youth pastor, you know, dealing with kids specifically who were promiscuous and, and got involved, you know, sexually before uh, marriage. Uh, there was a letter, you know, that was a, a young girl had written that she took to her counselor and it said this. And it kind of captures, I think, what I'm trying to communicate with you today. She said this, premarital sex gave me fear as a gift and shame to wear as a garment it stole my peace of mind and it robbed me of hope and a bright future. Sex smashed my concentration in class to smithereens and my desire for church activity was ground to a pulp. It made crumbs of the trust that I had in Christ and in men and in women. Sex gave me a jagged tear in my heart that even now, seven years later, is still healing. And I think, you know, many of us can relate to that, those words. You know, so it's no wonder, you know, the Apostle Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. You can look there. He says, flee sexual immorality for every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Now, it's important you know the little bit of the backstory here. The city of Corinth, you know, has had a population of about 450,000, kind of like uh, living in Bakersfield, I guess you could say. It was a cosmopolitan city. Um, there were tr it was a trade uh, community. There, there was roads that came from the north, the south, the east, and the west, and they all converged there on the city of Corinth. So major transportation hub, easy to get to. Uh, everybody came from the known ancient world, and uh, it was known for its immorality. It, you might say that Corinth was the Las Vegas of its day, and I think that can kind of give you, you know, the, the picture there, you know. Um, you know, we, we have a, a, a phrase, right, in our world that what happens in Vegas does what? Stays in Vegas. Yeah, you've heard that, you know, that quote. Well, it was said, you know, of the people of Corinth that men couldn't afford to go to the city of Corinth. I mean, it was just one of those things because of temple prostitution, you know, that uh, took place there. There was a temple there that was dedicated uh, to the, the goddess of sex, uh, Aphrodite. 
Uh, and again, this temple had a thousand temple prostitutes who would come down at night and go into the city and they would engage in sexual immorality with the men who had come into that city. And they would charge them, obviously, through prostitution, you know, um, amounts of money. And they would take that, you know, that money and they would then distribute it back into uh, the temple uh, itself. And so it was a way of, of generating income or resource uh, for the temple. Interesting as you, as you think about, you know, Paul speaking to this and even Solomon in the book of Proverbs, you know, the Greeks had this philosophy on life, that they thought that the soul of, of the person was, was the most important aspect of our being. And we think about that even as Christians, you know, that the body is going to, is going to die, but the spirit's going to live on. But we also know that Jesus is going to raise our body as well. So he's going to redeem even our flesh, you know, in uh, the second coming, the, the rapture of the church. I mean, we understand that, um, you know, there is a value, and we see something different, uniquely different between uh, the body and the spirit. Well, the, the Greeks, they just didn't believe that the body or the flesh had any value whatsoever. So as long as you worship God with your spirit, you could basically do whatever you wanted to do with your flesh. And you know what? There's many that hold to that same belief or that same understanding today of thinking that the most important thing. Well, Paul is going to tie it all together here. And this is why sexual sin to the apostle Paul, to the Lord himself should be to us as well, is so dangerous in our lives that it is unique. It is different than any other sin that we could commit. And again, they lived in a, a society very much like ours today. I mean, you know, debauchery was everywhere. It was very loose. Um, you just look at all the things that we see in culture today, whether it's in, you know, you know, you pull up in places and, and I really have no, I can't really point a finger here. And I have to say this other than the, the language I've always had in, in cars that I had always had a really nice stereo system. I had a, my senior year in high school, I bought a Camaro uh, Z28 and I had T-tops put on it and my parents bought me a uh, stereo system from Translex Stereos. Anybody remember Translex Stereo? Yeah. And uh, so I worked there and, and Paul Carousel, the owner, was a friend of mine. So Paul, he did, gave me the hookup for, for my birthday and then for my graduation for my parents and really decked my car out. And you could hear this thing coming. My dad said my dog used to start barking when I was about a mile away from my house. Okay. But I didn't play music that I mean, I guess it was, you know, this is the thing. I guess it was offensive to like certain age groups because they just didn't like, you know, the type of music, but it wasn't vulgar. I mean, I'll be at a stop sign and I'm listening and I can't believe the words that are coming out. I mean, they're playing this as loud as they can do it. And it's, it's an F-bomb after F-bomb after F-bomb after F-bomb. And I'm telling you, even as a, I'm getting mad, you know, and I'm wanting to like, what do I do? <laughs> You know, and, and, you know, you're wanting to, you should pray, you know, and I'm, okay, Lord, I got to pray. I got to pray for myself and pray that, you know, and, but I get it, you know, so it's just part of our culture today. We are, we are becoming so callous. I, I use this expression all the time with you, the frog in the kettle, right? You know, that we are just being, you know, deluded, you might say, you know, from purity, just, you know, one day at a time in our culture, Hollywood, the movies the you know, we're being desensitized with everything that's going on. And so it's so important though that we recognize those things and we again do everything that we can to set our minds on the things that are up above and not the things of this earth. 
uh, because it's destructive. And we're, we see what's happening in our world today. All you have to do is turn on the television. And it's not just happening, you know, in Bakersfield. It's not just happening in California. It's not just happening in the United States. It's happening all around the world. And you go, why? And you go, as the world moves further and further away from God, we become less God-centered in our lives. We become very self-centered. And what happens, you know, that the flesh is, has insatiable desires that cannot be satisfied. And so we, we look at these things, you know, and Paul is making really clear here in his letter to the church at Corinth, this was a church that was struggling. They were struggling because of their culture that they lived in the same way. And again, this was a letter written to the church. It wasn't written to the world. And, and again, you look at this church today, you look at the world today, we, we live in the exact same time frame in the sense of, of what is transpiring in the world then is still transpiring today. And what I mean by that is simply this, all that's changed between the time that Paul wrote this letter to the church at Corinth, Corinth and today is, is time and technology. The heart of man hasn't changed at all. You're not seeing any difference in the heart of man. You're just seeing the difference being in technology. And again, you know, something that was written around, you know, AD, you know, 60 uh, to now it's 2020. And you go, but we haven't progressed in that regard. The heart is still deceitfully wicked, the Bible says, and above all things, who can know it? And so, again, does this apply to us? And you go, absolutely. It was, a, it was in context, was written to a letter uh, to a church in Corinth. But it, it applies and it's applicable to you and I today, individually and collectively, you know, as a church as well. And so, you know, again, but I love the fact when you look at this in, in verse 9 there in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you know, here's Paul. He's being very clear, you know, that there is a price to pay if you practice sin. So if you're a note taker, you might want to write that word down or if you lock in on it, it's the word practice, okay? Now, we are all sinners, and we're sinners saved by grace. But what Paul is, is talking about here is the same thing that you know, I love how Pastor Chuck Smith, you know, that's one of the things about wisdom that you, you know, that he would have this pithy statement. You know, and again, what is a proverb? A pithy statement that packs a powerful punch. And Pastor Chuck would say, you know, if there hasn't been a change, then there hasn't been a change. And what he was saying by that is there hasn't been a change in you then you can't say that Christ is in you because if Christ comes into your life, there will be a change. The things that you used to desire, the things that you used to do, you will not desire those any longer because a transformation, that could be a slow transformation, but a transformation is going to take place in our lives. We are, we are going to desire holiness in our life. We are going to seek holiness. We want to be holy as he is holy. When you love someone, you know, again, we, we emulate people. You look, I grew up playing sports. I mean, you know, you, you look at, you know, I can, I could probably make faces of athletes. You know, there was a, a basketball player who's really famous. He used to stick his tongue out, right? When he would, when he would shoot. And most kids, when they play basketball and they'd get ready to shoot, they'd stick their tongue out and they go, why? And they go, because their favorite player, you know, would do that, you know, as well. And, and we seek to emulate people and we're called to be, Jesus said, be, you know, as Paul would say, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you become. You know, we don't do it to ourselves. It's the transformation that takes place as Christ in us, as he brings that change from the inside out. And so yet Paul is dealing with the consequences of those who practice. And what that means to practice sin is not the person who steps in it, not the person who occasionally does it, but the person who actually sets out to perfect it. 
It's that person, that's what you think about during the course of the day. You go, hmm, how can I do this? You know, how can I, how can I get to, you know, this sinful habit in my life? You know, hey, I'll stop by here and pick up one of those on the way home. Or, uh, you know, I'll tell my wife I'm going over here, but really I'm going to go over here, you know, or my, I'm telling my boss I'm going to do this. I'm going to be, and you're thinking about that. That's called practice. That's not stumbling. That's premeditated. And, and Paul warns us about that. And you go, well, do we all do that to a certain degree? And you go, well, it could be a fine line. You go, but like the Puritans, you know, that are so different than our culture today, the Puritans, you know, every single day of their life, I mean, they believed in the Lord's prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For what? Forgive us every day. I mean, is that a practice of my life and your life that every day, I'm going, Lord, forgive me. That we are so desirous to be in tune with him that we're, we're living in a constant state of forgiveness. There's a teaching that's so prevalent today in the world that we go, well, you know, once you got saved, I mean, you, you don't need to ask God for forgiveness anymore. You just thank him. I go, well, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus taught his disciples to pray. I go, where do people get that? And you go, that's just pride. That we just don't want to admit that we're wrong. We don't want to admit that we're off. We don't want to admit that, you know, we're not God. And, and we're not perfect. But he is. And so Paul addresses this in, in verse 9 there. He says, in, in verse 9, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He says, Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. <laughs> so I love this, right in the midst of that. You know, people can go, you know, Pastor Mike, I can't help it. That's the way that I am. You know, we, we have this whole thing, you know, with, especially with regard to sexuality. Oh, I was born that way. You know, uh, I, I, you know, I, I have a, a gay gene, you know, I was born. No, you weren't born with a gay gene. There is no such thing. And we can prove it because you could do postmortem. You could take a homosexual and you could do uh, an autopsy and you could look into their brain and you go, is there something in there that, that and you go, no, that's a lie from the pit of hell. It's, it's trying to do what? It's trying to justify our sin. You go, oh, uh, you know, uh, I, have a, I have an anger gene. I just, I, it's just my predisposition. You know, I, I have a, a, a theft, you know, uh, disposition. I have a lying disposition. You know, I have a covetous, you know, it's just the way I am. And isn't that what people do? Well, it's just the way I am. You know what? And guess what? Even if that's the way that you were, it's because of the fall of man. And, and because of that, we need to what? Be born again. We need to experience the grace of God. We need to experience the transformation of God in our life. And guess what? He promises us. So we're not hanging our hat on the fact that he goes, okay, these are all the things that you practice these things and you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't say, that's it. You're all done. You're out of here. No, How, what does he do? He stops right there in verse 11 and he demonstrates to us that there's the power of transformation. And he uses them in the midst of this church, in the midst of this culture that they were living in, where sin was so prevalent, all these things were being practiced. And he said, and such were some of you. What is he, what is he saying to them? Past tense. You used to be that way. Isn't that a great reminder? You know, you could read this and you go, you know, we don't have to be ashamed then. You go, because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. You go, yeah, that's who I was. But that's not who I am. Yeah, I did those things. I, I did all those things. And you go, but that's not who I am today. And that's what he's saying. As such were some of you. But you were what? Read that with me. He says, but you were what? Washed. But you were what? Sanctified. You were set apart. You were cleansed. You were sanctified. And you were ultimately, and here's the greatest part, is you were what? Justified. 
What is that expression about justification? Just as if I'd never sinned, right? That's what you have in Christ Jesus. He's going, you were, what? You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So what is he doing? He's connecting, you gotta understand what he's doing. He's connecting spirit and flesh here, spirit and body. He's going by the person of Jesus Christ and also the person of the Holy Spirit. So this isn't like the Greeks were declaring, you know, and this is why he's saying that. that's why it's important to understand the cultural context behind it is that he's going just because, you know, they say, you know, that, oh, the flesh, you know, doesn't matter. It's just honor him in your spirit. Paul's going, nope, it's a package deal. He's either, as the old expression says, he's either Lord over all or he's not Lord what? At all. Yeah. So, so important. Some of you. And yet, you know, here's Solomon. You know, as I was sharing this with you a couple weeks ago in Proverbs 5 through 7 there, he's encouraging his son to, to listen to him. You know, he's, he's saying, you know, I want to warn you, son, about the dangers that you're going to face with regards to the opposite sex here. And this applies to women just like it applies to men. Don't think it's, it's one way here. And, and you might think it's strange, you know, that God is using Solomon, you know, a guy that, like I said, had 700 wives and 300 concubines to teach his son about, you know, the ills of, of idolatry or the ills of, you know, adultery or promiscuity or, you know, uh, sexual sin. You go, no, I think that, that makes him an expert. If, there any, if there's anybody that knows the hurt and the heartache that comes with sexual sin, it's Solomon. And see, and there's something that should be encouraging to you, not that we would continue in sin, as Paul would write again to the church in Rome, but that we would understand where sin abounds, grace did all the more. The enemy doesn't get the victory over your sin. Jesus does. And so by sharing openly the hurts and the heartaches, the sin, the failure that we have in our life with other people, not to glorify it, but to let them know the hurt that it's caused, not only to ourselves, but to other people, helps become a deterrent. But again, but if we're prideful and we're unwilling to humble ourselves before people, then what are we doing? And it's part of why the, the unbelieving world has a problem with the church, because they recognize the hypocrisy in the church. They know they're not perfect, but it's when you and I try to pretend to be something that we're not. And it's what Jesus hated. It's what he called the religious leaders. He said they were whitewashed tombs. They were, they were hypocrites. They wore a mask. They were trying to present themselves to be something that they're not. It's better to go that, you know, we're all sinners saved by grace. Now, that's varying degrees and obviously, you know, different things in life. And this one specifically is speaking to sexual sin here. But Paul, as he does in 1 Corinthians 6, he addresses a lot of things. But sexual sin obviously has some repercussions that, uh, again, we've got to be open to discussing. We can't go the way of our culture that is trying to present through media, through Hollywood, through movies, through music. Everything is just trying to portray, you know, what God calls an abomination is to try to, we're seeing this in our culture today, this, this cancel culture, right? That we're somehow just, if we tear down the statues, we're just going to, you know, tear down the memory, you know, of our past. And you go, no, because it's part of us. And, and sexual sin stays with us. I mean, even after, long after the act itself. And that's why it's so important to find forgiveness because it's only going to be at the cross where we're truly going to experience the forgiveness that we need and desire to live a life of freedom. And, and, and God is offering that to us. So if you think about, you know, 
Solomon? Solomon's a good choice because he, did he heed you know, God's warning in his own life about not having multiple wives? No, you know. If you're a note taker, you can write that down. Deuteronomy 17, 17. And what God had said about taking you know, wives unto himself. He, he, we know that you know, his foreign wives did what? They turned his heart from God. And that's exactly what God would say that would happen. Solomon knew, you know, by his experience, you know, again, God had given him. I mean, think about this wisdom. God had granted him great wisdom. We read that in Second Chronicles chapter 1, verses 11, you know, and 12. So it, it enabled in that wisdom, think about this, because Proverbs, again, by, you know, a statement here is a proverb is, is simply what? A, a pithy statement that packs a powerful punch, right? That's what, that's what Proverbs is. So when you go back and you study in the book of Proverbs, here's Solomon who God has granted and blessed him with tremendous wisdom. He's able to encapsulate all kinds of thoughts with regard to sexual immorality or sexual purity, and he puts it in a real pithy statement. So that what? Because again, remembering things, I mean, I know some of you, I, I talk to you all the time, you go, Pastor Mike, man, it's so hard for me to memorize scripture. And you go, that's one of the great beauties of of Proverbs. If you're going through Proverbs, you know, like a proverb a day, a proverb a day, you just read one proverb a day and read, so you're going to read over the course of the month, 31 Proverbs. And you just did that for years in your life. What do you, eventually you're just going to be quoting it. It's not that you're going to actually even try to. The, the stress isn't going to be there. The strain's not going to be there. Again, it's just because, you know, it's like the old expression, garbage in, garbage out. You know, the word of God in, the word of God out. It'll just start, you know, we just, unfortunately what happens is we spend too much time reading other things that, you know, <laughs> our mind's like a disc. It's just picking up all kinds of data. So we need to spend probably a little bit more time focusing on the word of God. And so when you think about, you know, how important was this issue of, of sexuality to Solomon? And th this is important as you're reading through the book of Proverbs. There's 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs. He dedicates three whole chapters to the issue of sexuality. Okay. That, that's, you know, when you think about one-tenth, one-tenth of the entire book of Proverbs. So again, people go, well, so why are we making such a big deal about it? Because the word of God makes a big deal about it. Solomon makes a big deal about it. He, he draws this out. So it's important that we understand it should be something that we should be talking about more often. You know, we, we shy away from, we go, oh, we don't have this conversation. And you go, no, but look what's happening. You know, that old expression, you know, to, you know, H-E-L-L hockey sticks in a handbag, um, you know, is what's taking place in the world today. Because what? We're not confronting the issues. We're not being willing to stand up and be counted because we're afraid. If we're really honest about it, you look what's happening in the world today, right now. I mean, there's a, there's a tremendous attack against conservatives in this country, whether that be conservative in your religious belief or conservative in your political belief. You step up and you step out and you begin to be a voice for what you believe as a conservative. You go, what are you going to get? <laughs> you're going you're gonna to come under attack. You know, I mean, somebody is going to come after you. And, and Jesus you know, reminds us, he's telling us these things are going to happen. You know, again, we don't have to live in fear. He's telling us in advance that this is what's going to happen. In the end times, men are going to become lovers of themselves rather than lovers of God. They're going to be proud. They're going to be disobedient to their parents. I mean, there's going to be great division. There's going to be, you know, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, this infighting that's going to take place. And, you know, again, we're seeing all these things that, that are transpiring. We shouldn't be surprised by any of it. But it also shouldn't cause us to become fearful and to back down. 
is to realize that, you know, th this, is our, this is our moment to shine. Like I said, the, the two best times to be alive in this world were when Jesus walked the earth, and I believe the second best time was today, before he comes again. You know, I mean, people are, they are scared today. They are fearful today, many even in the church. And so for us to be able to share the hope that's in Christ, that we don't need to live in fear. I mean, we're all going to die one day. The, the key is, it's not, well, if we believe, do we not die? Well, we understand this in the truest sense, we don't. Jesus said it, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall I live, and he who believes in me will never die, right? We go, okay, I get that. You go, but to have that comfort in your life, you go, yeah, in, these things can happen. You go, but we're going to live forever. We're going to be with God for eternity. And so I don't need to live in fear. And so a lot of really what we believe gets challenged. Do we truly believe what we believe? You know? and, and my hope is that, you know, that we're able then to speak into the lives of people. You don't need to live in fear. Yes, all these things are going to happen. The key isn't, are you going to die? It's where are you going to go when you die? Amen. And so to not get all caught up in the politics of, of, of the world today, but as you and I, as believers in Christ, is to get caught up in the gospel, is to go, hey, I hear what you're saying, but you know what? I mean, you know, what's the real solution? Well, the real solution is what would happen if everybody repented and the whole world turned to God and we loved God and we loved one another. You go, yeah, that sounds like the millennial kingdom. Okay, uh, you know, and one day it's going to occur. But, you know, we do our part, you know, today to do everything that we possibly can to bring us to that place. You know, we live in a day where we're seen, you know, in, in the world that we live in, you know, that evil is being called good and good is being called evil. And especially with regard to sexuality. I mean, it, it's, it's amazing, you know, the lifestyles that are being, that are being promoted, like I said, in television, the movies and books and music and everything else. And these are the things that especially our kids are growing up with. They're being inundated with on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, we, we are moving away from what this country was founded on. With, you know, we understand and believe, you know, a, a Judeo-Christian ethic. And the farther that we move from that, the more dangerous life is going to become. You know, and again, and I want you to understand something. I want to be really, really clear on this. You know, there's a, a great push in this country. We've seen a Proposition 8 here in the state of California, right, to redefine marriage. You know, that the Bible is clear on this, that marriage can be defined as a monogamous relationship between one biological male and one biological female, okay? And I have to say that because of all the things that happen, you know, in our world today. But that's, that's how God defined what marriage is, you know, that it's, it's, a, it's an institution of marriage that exists between a man and a woman, okay? There is no such thing, biblically speaking, as same-sex marriage. And we could spend weeks on, on going into this. You know, and, and again, when you think about why is sexuality so important, you go, because it's the basis of our identity. And it's under attack today. To think that you know, when a child is born into this world that we're not going to identify that child and say, well, we're not going to determine what the child is. We're going to let the child determine what they want to be at some point in their life. And you go, that is an abomination before God. Because you didn't create your children. God did. We just have the, the, the joy of being able to birth them to be the incubator, you might say, to bring them into this world. But they truly belong to God. They're his, and they were created in his image. In the image of God, they were created, what? Male and female. You know, when a child was born into the world in my day, the doctor delivered, you know, the child. And what was the first thing he said? There was only one of two things that the doctor said. He said, it is a what? Boy or it is a 
girl. And you go, and what, you know, what determined that? You go, was our sexuality. It's the core of our existence. It's the core of our being as people. Some people go, I don't think we should talk about this. You go, no, it it encompasses every aspect of our being, even with regard to our faith and our relationship with God. When you think about the, the concept, and I'll get to this in a moment, but of knowing God, the same word for knowing God intimately is the same word that's actually used for a man knowing a woman face to face. And so there you go, God uses kind of a, a sexual uh, term in that. And you go, absolutely. Because everything's tied to our sexual identity, our, though our relationship with God isn't sexual, but it is intimate. And so it's important that we understand that. And it's important that, you know, we don't just sweep this under the proverbial rug, so to speak, because again, you know, as, and I, I want to be clear on this, that there is a redefinition that's taking place, you know, in our world. It's not just canceling a culture of redefining, you know, what marriage is. And it's not about fairness. It's not about women's rights. It's about changing the nature of our society. It's not just about being tolerant, you know. No, it, it's, it's, again, as God calls certain behavior an abomination, it's the world's, the world's, means of trying to undo what God has as firmly and clearly and concisely declared in his word, certain behaviors that we are not to have in our life. And it won't make any difference, you know, what the world says and how many times the world says that it's good or that it's right. You know, when God calls it sin, it's sin. And again, but we're living in a culture, we're living in a day and we're seeing it played out right before our very eyes. You know, I mean, all you have to do is turn on the television is the world is calling evil good today. Can you see that? And they're calling good evil. Just take the issues that, you know, surround even just our, our police, you know, uh, in the world today. Uh, not saying that, you know, again, that every police officer, you know, is good. Uh, just like there's not every person is good or in anything. You go, but generally speaking, you know, I mean, the police are there established by God for our protection. And, and yet there's a whole now group of people that think all police are evil. And we're calling this exactly what scripture said. So it shouldn't surprise us. We shouldn't, it's not that we even get mad at that, that regard. I go, I get it because that's what the world does. They call evil good and they call good evil. But we have to recapture that uh, in our own lives as the church. And, and remember, you know, again, we can't buy into it. We can't accept it. And if we roll over to it, um, like I said, the, the end will definitely come very, very quickly here. You know, from the very beginning, you know, God created us, you know, human beings as sexual beings. And in Genesis, like I said, we read the husband and wife becoming one flesh there in Genesis 2, 24. And yet we see the impact of the fall, you know, right from the very impact and the way that it distorts, you know, humanity's desires and it corrupts our, our actions. And so we look at this in scripture and we see that, you know, Scripture very clearly addresses then sexual sin. And it does it in a discreet manner. I mean, you think about it. I mean, uh, it deals with, you know, the issues of, of rape and adultery, you know, to the prohibitions against lust and fornication. And yet we don't see, you know, when you read the Bible, we don't see terms like sexual harassment or even pornography in the direct sense or sex trafficking, things that we, we find in our world today. But we do see the, the, the same repercussions for sexual sin uh, because it's as old as humanity itself. All we have to do is go back and study the scripture. There in, in 1 Corinthians 6, 12, Paul then goes on and he says, and all things though they're lawful for me, 
And I, and I love this. He says, but not all things are helpful. He says, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of anything. So Paul had something to say, you know, like this. He says, because this was, this was part of his teaching, you know, about the grace of God. He says, all things are lawful for us. See, the legalist looks at this and the legalist, and you, if you are a legalist or you know one, the legalist looks at this and says, everything is wrong unless you can prove from a verse of scripture that it's right. And that's called legalism. It's a negative approach to life. And there's many, many people that that's how they approach their relationship with God. Everything is prohibitive. Don't touch this. Don't touch this. And so Paul goes the other way with it. You know, I mean, and he, and again, because the New Testament, you know, it, it approaches it from a different perspective. Paul is saying everything's right. He's saying God made heaven and earth. He made everything that's in it. And it's right except for the things where God places a label on it. And he says that it's wrong. And again, but this is an entirely different viewpoint than they were expecting and what they were used to here. And so Paul is basically telling us, you know, that there's, there's a very limited part of scripture that truly labels things as wrong. You know, it's like this. I mean, do you put a fence around something that you want to protect? And you go, yes, that's why you put a fence around it. God puts a fence around marriage and our sexuality, not because he's a prude, not because he doesn't want us to have any fun, is he wants it to be a protected relationship. He said, you know, that the marriage bed is to be undefiled and it's to be held in honor marriages amongst all people here. And so, again, understanding when God puts a, a prohibition on something, again, it's, he's not a killjoy. There, there's a reason for it. You know, it, and again, ultimately, it's to protect our very lives. Verse 13 goes on. It says, for the uh, foods for the stomach and the stomach for food. So you can see the connection there. He says, but God will destroy both it and them. It says, now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Because again, how they viewed the spirit and, and the soul here, they treated sex as it was an appetite to be satisfied, not that it was a gift to be cherished and to be used carefully. And so Paul, you know, he answers this and he puts it in, in such, you know, brief words. He's, he's basically saying food is for the stomach and, and the stomach is made for food. He says, but God will destroy both one and the other. So again, what is he saying? He's going, it's a temporary arrangement. You say, yeah, it's true that, you know, stomach and food, they're made for each other. You know, obviously that's how God designed it, but it's only serving a temporary purpose and it's only for in this life. But there's coming a, get, a day, you know, he says, you know, God's going to destroy both the food and the stomach. So it's, there's no permanent plan you can say for the food, for food and for our stomach. But there is a permanent plan in the sense for the body. So we go back to the very beginning as we started this, you know, why sex sins are worse than other sins, because now he's talking about the body as a whole, not this component, the, the stomach and food. So he, he's talking about not, you know, our digestive system, you might say here, but he's talking about the overall, you know, program that God has for our life and the way that sexuality, our sexuality plays into that because it touches us on such a deeper level in our life. You know, food, like I said, is something that you couldn't even remember, you know, for the most part, maybe what you ate yesterday. But I can tell you, you know, for the most part, unless you, again, fell into the category, and there are people that fall into this category in Romans 1, when, when people were no longer thankful to God, and it says, and God gave them over to a reprobate mind. There are people that have committed sexual sin that their, their minds are so callous 
they can't even remember. That's when you've really crossed the line. But most people can remember the hurt and the shame of illicit sexual activity. You don't remember what you ate, so this is what Paul's saying, hey, food, you know, it's going to go away, stomach's going to go away, but I can tell you this, you know, the, the sins that you commit against your body, they don't just go away. It's not going to be like, oh, I forgot. No, you're going to remember, and the enemy's going to bring it to your memory, and you're going to see, as I said, the repercussions, they're different. It's not that, you know, sex sins are harder for God to forgive because they aren't, okay, and we can repent and we can turn from that. But the repercussions, the consequences of sexual sin are far more damaging, far reaching. Like I said, whether it's an unwanted pregnancy, whether, you know, it's a sexually transmitted disease, whether it's just the torment of, because again, as we give ourselves, and we'll see this later in this chapter to someone else, that you wish that you could forget them, but you can't at that point. There's something about that. Like I said, you can forget all kinds of things that you've eaten, but there's something about, you know, our sexuality that it's on a, it's a body, soul, and spirit level. Does that make sense? Not if you're, not if you're tracking with me. If you're at home and you're tracking, not, okay, good. And now this is something, one of, one of my, I hadn't read him in years, but Ray Stedman, yeah, I always loved when I first came to know the Lord and, uh, Pastor Chuck would always refer to Ray Stedman, and um, he wrote this. This isn't my own thought. He said, do you realize that the Bible teaches that worship is a form of sexual expression? He said, if the basic definition of sex is to urge, is the urge to merge, he said, you can see that going on in terms of friendship, can't you? He said, you sit down with a friend and you want to share. You say, you, you want to hear what they have been doing. You want to hear them tell you uh, what they've been doing, and you want to tell them what you've been doing. He says, you want to hear what their opinions are about certain things, and you want uh, them to listen to yours. Friendship consists of an interchange of one life with another at a level of soul that's in its expression of mind, emotion, and will. He says, now what is worship? Worship is a hunger to be possessed by God and to possess all that there is of God. The worshiping spirit cries out and says, oh Lord, come be with me, take me, use me, possess me. God in turn gives us the beautiful promise that he makes himself available to us to be owned and used by us and relate to us. Jesus then, he put it in the most precise way when he said this, that the deepest relationship possible between a human being and God is you in me and I in you. John chapter 14, verse 20. You know, that's what Paul's talking about here. He says in verse 14, and God has both raised up the Lord and he will also raise us up by his power. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? You know, think about it like this, church. You know, if we begin every single day of our life, if you got up and I got up every day and we surrendered our body to Christ, we surrendered our body to Christ, do you think that would make a difference in what we would do with our body during the course of the day? It's pretty simple, isn't it? That we, if we dedicate our body to Jesus, you go, Jesus, I'm yours. I'm dedicating myself to you today. 
I'm going to do what you want me to do. I'm going to go where you want me to go. I'm going to say what you want me to say. I'm going to drink what you want me to drink. I'm going to eat what you want me to eat. I'm going to, you go, there's something beautiful about that, this, this exchange. And that's exactly what the Lord desires in our life. And you think about all the sins, you know, um, that we can commit, you know, with our body, not just sexual. He says in verse 16, he says, or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. You know, obviously, we, you know, we know that when a, a, a woman and a man join their bodies together, their entire personality is involved. That there, there's, there's such a, especially in the beauty of marriage, because there's a commitment that's there in this oneness, the, the beauty of that. That, and again, but when it's not with regard to a marriage relationship and it's done through the act of fornication or idolatry or adultery, it, it then becomes idolatry in that. And, and there's deep and lasting consequences that, that come with that. You know, and, and that's what Paul's warning us about here, that, you know, again, a person can sin, you know, sin against their own body. And, and when you do that, it involves the whole person because, you know, you're, you're all in. You might say at that point, it's body, soul, and spirit here. You know, again, it's, it's why it's so important you know, that, we, that we understand, you know, being male and female involves the whole person. You know, you think about that, the beauty of that, the way that God plumbed us, you know, uh, anatomically, you know, that here we are, you know, the male is the giver, the female is the receiver, and it's this beautiful thing, this exchange that God created us in his image, male and female, and when we come together, this oneness. And so, you know, to treat that lightly and not recognize that there's something very much spiritual about that, you know, we, we understand that the Trinity, you know, that God is, you know, body in that sense and soul and spirit, uh, triune being, you know, that Father, Son, and Spirit working together in combination and oneness. And so, you know, uh, we can then begin to understand, you know, that obviously our, our sexual experience, you know, involves our complete personality. It involves our, our total person. Verse 17 goes on, it says, but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. So in the same way that, you know, that a man would join himself to a harlot, and when he does that, he takes on the sins of that person. I mean, you think about that, you know, doctors will tell us this, and this is one of those things that, in one sense, it's kind of disgusting when you think about it, is that through the act of sexual uh, intercourse, that there's a swapping of DNA that scientists tell us that never leave. That So when you become involved with someone sexually, physically, that you take on their DNA and they take on your DNA. And you go, would you, and you think about that, you go, if that was just a one night stand type of thing, you go, would you, would you really want that experience? I mean, would you really want that kind of, you know, uh, swap, so to speak? And you go, people would go, no, absolutely not. You know, if I really thought about that, and you go, but the problem is we don't think about that. And then the beauty of communion, which we do love, and we talk about it all the time, right? When you receive communion, what are we doing? We're taking that, that bread, which is, is representative of the body of Christ, and it's broken for us, and we receive it. And then we take that cup that's representative of his blood that was shed for us, and we ingest it. And it does what? It becomes one with us. We're, we're seeing it in a mystic way. You know, the beauty, though that is just bread. I mean, we don't believe in, you know, transubstantiation. You know, that we're not believing that the bread is literally the body and the blood of, of Christ. But we understand it symbolically. We, we see that it's more than just symbolism. There is something mystic. There is something deep, you know, about that. 
And Paul's going, you need to understand, you know, sexuality, it's the same thing. It's on the same level there. It's not something to be taken lightly here. He says, but he who's joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. So he says, therefore, flee sexual immorality. Every, and again, this comes back to every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. And that's really, you know, so the fornicator, the adulterer, the homosexual, you know, they may forget their sins, but their sins will not forget them. And we know that to be true. You know, it was Pastor Jack Hayford, and I shared this with you. There was 10 things, and I'm going to read these really quick right when we close here. Um, he, he gave a list in a book. You, you might look it up. It's called, the book's called Fatal Attraction. It was written by Pastor Jack Hayford. And uh, in the book, he, he lists, you know, again, 10, the, the implications, you know, why sex sins are worse than other sins. Number one was the damage of the foundation of our identity. Again, it's an attack against our very identity. Uh, number two, exploit the deepest aspects of our emotions. You know, what that does to us emotionally. That's why, you know, there's an old expression that women give sex to get love and men give love to get sex. And, and there's something, you know, emotional that, that we're after with that. Uh, number three, it pollutes our God-given privilege to beget life. Number four, it produces guilt that cripples the confidence of a believer in Christ. Number five, it compromises the foundations of marriage. Number six, it exposes us to the risk of begetting unsupported children. And number seven, it increases the probability of spreading disease. Number eight, it gives place to appetites for increased immoral behavior. And we know that from Romans 1 again. It goes from homosexuality, ultimately ends up with what? Bestiality. Sin is an insatiable appetite. Number nine, it breaches a trust with the whole body of Christ. No man's an island. You know, we impact, you know, one another. Jesus said a little leaven does what? A little leaven does what? Leaven's what? The whole loaf of bread. Yeah. And number 10, it's an assault. It's an assault against the pure lordship of Jesus Christ in our life because of it's the sin of idolatry that we're putting something above Jesus Christ at that point. Those things you could spend days and weeks delving into each and every one of those, those 10 items there. In verse 19, he says, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, you are not your own. You know, and that's theirs. You know, why is fornication and adultery different than other sins? Because God, the Father, created our bodies. God, the Son, redeemed them, made them part of his body. And God, the Spirit, indwells within our bodies and makes us the very temple of God. And how can we defile God's temple? By using our bodies for immorality. It's really the question that has to beg to be asked. And then verse 20 says, For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now, in closing, I want you to think about that. For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. David Guzik in his commentary he said, Any honest person will take better care of something that doesn't belong to them. Maybe that's how we all need to leave here today. Think about your body, whether it's sexual sin, any kind of sin against your own body, gluttony, drugs, alcohol abuse, whatever, you know, that you might be doing that you go, think about when you borrow something from somebody else. 
Do you know, by a show of hands, is, is there anybody in your life, by a show of hands, that you like to loan things to because when they give it back to you, it comes back to you better than how you loaned it to them? Anybody? Can you think of that? Yeah, there's a few people, you know. I, I, I love when certain people borrow stuff. And do you have anybody in your life that you don't like to loan anything to? Because if you do loan it to them, you know that it's not going to come back in the shape that you, okay. Our, so think about it this way. Your body is on loan to you from God, okay? It belongs to him. And you got to give it back one day. How do you want to give it back to him? You know, when it's somebody that you really love and you care about, you go, you want to, if it's somebody that, you know, that you really appreciate, what do you do when you borrow something from them? You know, it's like, you know, before we had a truck, I remember I would ask my father-in-law, I'd say, Rod, can I borrow your truck? And my father-in-law, like, he takes care of everything. I mean, he's like, polishes it. You know, it's like, why does he have a truck? I don't even have any idea. It's too clean. It's like, you know, but he'll get it dirty, but, but he cleans it and he'd be out there and I, and I would be so scared borrowing his truck. Like, I want to check it and make sure there's no rocks even in the tread, you know, when you return it, you know, and you'd fill it up, you know, with gas or diesel because he likes diesel better than gas. And you don't confuse the two. That's really a bad thing. But you go, but well, what do you do? You go, because you appreciate it. You, you go, I want to, I hope they'll let me use it again. So I want to give it back better than how I got it because you want them when they look at it and you know, they're going to look at it just like God is going to look at it one day, right? He's going to do a little inspection, right? We're going to stand before God. He's going to go, so what'd you do with my body? Whoa, man, didn't take very good care of it, did you? Or do you go, man, I want to do everything I can because it's a way that I say that I love you and I appreciate you and I thank you, you know, for what you've given me. And that's, that's what Paul's saying. You know, he says, you know, you were bought at a price. What a price that God paid for us, amen? That he would go to a cross and die for us. He says, therefore, glorify God in your body. Hey, are all things lawful? Yeah. Paul's going, it's all lawful. He says, but not all things are profitable. And so it's our choice today to make that decision. You know what? God, thank you for the body that you've given us. The body, not just my physical body, but also what? This body too. The body of Christ that we could take care of one another. That's why the beauty of the church in the book of Acts was what the world saw, how they cared for the body, how they cared for one another. And then people went, man, you know what? I want to be part of that. So it's not just that it's totally personal because it does, just like sexual sin has a negative repercussion or implication upon the body as a whole, we also have an opportunity. And then we're doing that today as a church. We're serving our community. We've come together. We're collecting food. And this afternoon, we're going to give that out and we'll try to be a blessing to other people, this body. And we appreciate that so much that you guys would love and care about people that you give to that end. Some people that didn't give any food, they just give, you know, financially. They go, hey, you know what? Uh, go buy whatever you need. You know, man, let's, let's take care of people. That's what body ministry is. But Paul goes, don't forget that this, your body is the temple of God. It belongs to him. It's not yours. So we're not free to just then just go do it. He has established prohibitions in our life. But you only put a fence around something that you want to protect. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity that we get to study it together. And Lord, I know these topics can be uh, really difficult sometimes to, to hear and to bear because of our failure. But Lord, that's why you came. That's why you lived. That's why you died. That's why you rose again, so that we could experience forgiveness, that we could experience freedom, we could experience new life in you.
And so, Lord, I pray today, Lord, where sin abounds, that your grace would all the more. But that, Lord, we wouldn't see your grace as a license to continue in sin, but, Lord, we'd see your grace as, as an opportunity, as an ability to live a life that's pleasing not only to us, but a life that's pleasing to you and pleasing to the people that are around us, Lord. That truly, we, we, like when we loan stuff to people, uh, Lord, that we get it back, it's better, Lord, than how we first received it. And Lord, may that be true, Lord, of, of the body of Christ. Lord, that God may, uh, we came into this thing, be better. Uh, may, like that old expression, may we leave the world a better place than how we found it. And Lord, we, we can see that the, the world's not headed in that direction, but Lord, you said you've always kept back a remnant for yourself. And may we be part of that remnant, Lord, that those that don't bow a knee, Lord, to the world and the practices of this world, may we be willing to stand up, Lord. Let our lives be a light that's set on a hill that can't be hidden. And so as the darker it gets, the, the brighter we become. And so, Lord, we pray today that, God, you'd wash us, that you'd sanctify us, and that ultimately, God, you'd glorify us. And we know that that's only possible because of you, Lord Jesus. And we thank you for your love today. Thank you for saving us. And Lord, if there's anyone here that has yet to receive you as Savior and Lord, that maybe they're bound by their sin today. May they know there's freedom in Jesus today. May they come boldly before your throne of grace and say, Lord Jesus, uh, I need you. Save me. And that they would know in faith today that, Lord, they can be saved. They can be washed. They can be set apart for you. They can ultimately be glorified because of you. And we bless you and we praise you for that as we pray in Jesus' name. We all agreed saying amen. Amen. Amen.